0: Warning, this episode contains strong language in both English and Spanish. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniaks. On today's episode, we have a good friend of mine, Valerie Valdez. Uh, Valerie and I are members of uh, an online writing community together. We've known each other for... Some amount of years. Who knows? Time is fake. Anyway, Valerie, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Oh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: I'm delighted to have you. Uh, yeah, like I said in the intro, we've known each other for an indeterminate amount of time. Uh, Valerie, you went to Viable Paradise
1: 20? I did. I was, I was a member of that distinguished class.
0: Yes, a very distinguished class that I am not a member of, but know many people from.
1: Yes, yes, we had a lot of people, and certainly people in your area, including uh, Clarissa.
0: Yeah, and our friend Amy, who was the one who introduced me to the community. Yes,
1: yes, Amy is amazing. Well, everyone in my class is amazing, and all everyone of our- Everyone
0: in your class is amazing. And
1: all of our mutual friends, of course.
0: yes. Uh, Anyway, Valerie, you're going to be reading an excerpt from your novel Handyman, is that correct?
1: That's right, yes. Handyman was a novel that I wrote, completed, uh, started in 2012. It was a NaNoWriMo project, um, as many of my novels are, because November is a great time to bust out a ton of words. Uh, This was, I believe, my first finished novel, my first completed one. Uh, It took me a few months after Nano finished to be able to get get to the end. And it was a very short novel. It was only about 60,000 words ultimately. But as my first finished novel, it holds, of course, a special place in my heart.
0: Yeah, fantastic. All right, we are ready when you are.
1: All righty, here we go. This is chapter one. George parked his van in front of the cheery yellow two-story house just in time to hear a woman scream inside. He sighed and turned off the engine, unbuckled his seatbelt, and opened the door. "'Shouldn't we hurry?' Lola asked, jumping out of the passenger seat and jogging toward the front door as George walked around to the back of the van. "'Hurry and what?' George replied. He opened the truck doors and reached for his tool belt, carefully strapping it around his waist. "'Bust in? Hit things? Someone might be hurt!' Lola ran back, grabbed her own belt, and threw it on, followed by a motorcycle jacket. She tucked her black ponytail into the collar and zipped up. George picked up his toolbox, thought for a moment, then handed Lola a metal baseball bat. She took a practice swing, and he imagined her dense muscles flexing under the black leather. If someone is hurt, he said, closing the door, then something in there is dangerous. Rushing in unprepared is just going to get us hurt, too, and won't help whoever is in there. "'Lola sighed and squinted at the mid-morning sun. "'You sound just like your father.' "'He kissed her nose. "'My father was a smart man.' "'Who died doing exactly this,' he didn't add. "'Smart only got you so far, and they both knew it. "'Remember, when we're doing this stuff, I'm the boss. "'Follow my lead and do what I say.' "'You got it, boss.' "'They walked up to the front door of the house, "'and George rang the doorbell. "'He ran an appraising eye over the porch.' White trim, could use a wash and paint. Missing a mesh cover on the overhang, so there might be pests nesting inside. Warped wood in one corner of the floor from water damage, so there must be. Yes, the gutter was drooping. Needed reinforcement. Lola shifted from foot to foot, tapping the bat against her leg. He rested a hand on her arm to stop her, and she gave him a playful shove with her hip. How long do we wait before I... She began. There was a rustle of noise behind the door, and then it was opened by a disheveled blonde woman... "'who looked to be in her thirties. "'A sullen boy sat on the stairs behind her "'next to an equally sullen girl clutching a baby doll, "'which George noticed was missing an arm. "'Mrs. Ramirez?' George asked. "'You're the handyman?' "'The woman's voice was strained as her eyes darted "'from his buttoned uniform shirt to Lola's leather jacket. (laughs) "'George Tinker, ma'am,' George nodded at her. "'This is my wife, Dolores. May we come in?' "'Yes, of course.' Mrs. Ramirez backed up and George entered, followed by Lola. Nice place, he thought. Good tile work. Crown molding, beadboard. Just as she closed the door behind them, there was a crash from upstairs. The woman flinched, but George calmly set his toolbox down on the ground and pulled a notepad and pen from his pocket. I'm going to take a look myself, of course, but would you mind describing your problem? George asked. He's not a problem, the boy whined. He's my pet. He ate my baby, the girl yelled. I hate him. Their mother shot them a withering look and they fell silent. I don't... She started, then stopped, staring at George with wide eyes. It's okay, ma'am, George said, gesturing with his notepad. Go ahead. She took a deep breath, which was punctuated by another crash. It's bigger than you, she said. It was it was much smaller when Junior brought it home. I thought it was a dog. Kind of furry, but all in patches, you know? "Mm Mm-hmm, George scrimpled some notes. It has... "'Claws? But more like a dog than a cat?' Mrs. Ramirez shook her head. "'This is ridiculous. I don't even know. I mean, we've seen these before, ma'am. Don't worry. Big ears like a bat, right?' The woman nodded. "'And tiny eyes.' Another crash. Lola started up the stairs, dragging the bat against the wooden spokes in the railing. Tap, tap, tap. George wished she wouldn't do that. It took about two days to get this big?' George asked. "'Yes, I think so.' The boy scrambled to his feet, eyes on Lola. Where's she going? What's she going to do with Scruffy? George tucked his notepad back into his pocket and knelt down next to the boy. It's okay. Scruffy will be fine. The thing is, Scruffy doesn't belong here, okay? He's from somewhere else and he needs to go back home. No, he's mine, the boy shouted. A roar from upstairs responded and Lola paused on the landing outside a bedroom door. Junior, his mom exclaimed. This isn't finders keepers, kiddo, George said. "'Imagine if somebody found you in a park and took you to their house. "'Wouldn't you want to come back home?' "'The boy frowned at his mom. "'Maybe,' he muttered. "'Maybe,' George repeated. "'Now, imagine if this person lived in a really weird place, "'like the bottom of the ocean or inside a volcano, "'somewhere that doesn't feel good to you. "'Then would you want to go home?' "'Maybe, I guess.' "'George stood up and went to his stool box. "'Opening it, he pulled out a brass sensor on a chain.' and a ball of incense. Here's what we're going to do, Junior, he explained. We're going to send Scruffy back home so he can be where he belongs. This place isn't right for him, which is why he's making a mess out of your room up there. He loaded up the sensor and lit the incense, swinging it gently until it trailed smoke. That smells like church, the girl said, wrinkling her nose. <laughs> Good, George replied. He knelt next to the boy again. I'm going to need you to say goodbye to Scruffy, okay? The boy pouted and looked away. "'If you don't,' George said, "'he might get out and hurt your mommy or your sister. "'You wouldn't want that, would you?' "'Junior looked at his mother and his sister, "'his eyes finally settling on his sister's doll. "'No,' he mumbled. "'Good.' "'George stood up and started up the stairs. "'He pulled out his notebook again and flipped through it "'until he found the right page. "'All right, Lola, you're crowd control. "'Keep it in there however you can. "'It's going to come on fast and hard, so be ready.' She nodded and grabbed the doorknob to the bedroom. George chanted in Latin, his tongue tripping lightly over each syllable, his accent patently Spanish but still accurate enough for this purpose. He swung the censer in a figure eight, then a careful cross, and as he paused to turn a page there was a growl from the bedroom. "'Junior,' he called down, "'when I say now, I need you to say, Scruffy, go home, got it?' "'Yeah,' came the response. George saw that Mrs. Ramirez had grabbed her children and retreated into the dining room where they could still see the stairs, but could quickly duck behind a wall. George resumed chanting. He stopped in front of the door and raised his eyes to meet Lola's. On three, she said, and he nodded. One, she raised the bat. Two, her grip on the doorknob tightened. George blinked smoke out of his eyes. Three, Lola threw the door open and swung the bat. It connected with a loud crack as the creature inside leaped at them so fast it was a blur. George glimpsed drool-covered fangs and leathery skin, the brown of dry mud, then spun the censer like a bola and tossed it inside. "'Now, Junior!' he shouted. Silence replied. "'Junior!' he looked down and saw the family cowering together. "'Junior, say it!' Lola swung again and tried to close the door. The creature dug its claws into the doorframe and screamed, like something between a lion's roar and an eagle's shriek. "'Junior, please!' George grabbed the bat away from Lola so she could pull with both hands. Another set of claws slipped into the doorway and started to pry the door open. Lola slowly slid forward. "'Junior!' George bellowed. He swung the bat downward over Lola's head. Another roar, then the door was flung open, and Lola fell forward, catching herself and dropping into a crouch. His heart stopped. He started to step toward her, bat raised, but he seemed to be so slow and the creature was so fast. Go home scruffy came a weak voice from downstairs go away leave me alone the cloud of smoke from the sensor thickened and a bright light erupted inside the bedroom george shielded his eyes with the arm holding the bat with a shriek the creature was sucked backwards claws scraping against carpet followed soon after by all the smoke there was an audible pop then silence and a faint odor of bad eggs that had been close He wouldn't soon forget the image of Lola sprawled on the ground, even if he knew she could handle herself. George closed his eyes and counted to ten, both to let the spots clear and to get his temper back under control. When he opened them, Lola was already halfway downstairs, and the family had inched forward to look at them. "'It's all done, ma'am,' George called down. "'If you'll give me a few minutes, I'll take a look at the damage and give you a full estimate.' Mrs. Ramirez nodded, her eyes as big as saucers. "'Scruffy's gone?' the little girl asked. "'You bet,' George replied. She smiled. "'Good. He was stinky like abuelo.' "'Don't say that about (laughs) your abuelo,' Mrs. Ramirez scolded. Lola returned with George's toolbox. Their eyes met, and she blew him a kiss. Definitely too close, he thought. He should never have let her come along, but his last physical assistant had quit after the incident with the Cuegle. Not George's fault the guy had underestimated how strong the thing was, but that's how it went in his line of work. He pulled out a measuring tape and turned to look at the room. Clothes and toys were strewn everywhere, along with what looked like the remains of pillows and mattresses. The walls were shredded, and he wondered what the floor looked like under the mess. He picked up his sensor and stowed it absently, appraising the damage with a critical eye. Well, he muttered, they're certainly going to need new drywall. <laughs>
0: oh, that's fantastic.
1: <laughs> thank you, thank you.
0: That was super fun. I'm in awe of anybody who can do nano like, <laughs> um... As somebody who has made, uh, what year is it now, 2019? Yes. So yes. I've probably made six or seven attempts nice. at various levels of creating an outline. Yeah. And I think I think the most successful I've ever been was the year I was already writing a novel and decided that I was going to finish it during NaNoWriMo <laughs> and still didn't. No oh boy. You know, for a a variety of reasons, but it's always been an aspirational goal of mine, but not one that I actually think is my style.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely a challenge. Obviously, you're writing quite a lot of words in very little time, which is itself Mm -hmm. somewhat unbelievably challenging. Yeah. But also, you're doing it in November, which is typically a very uh, difficult month for people in terms of holidays... You know, travel, family time, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so while that is isn't mental health
0: associated with all of those.
1: Absolutely. And so even even just considering the emotional landscape of people during November, uh, not to mention the literal physical limitations that often occur. Um, it's It's a very difficult month. And at the same time, it is one of those things where if you can do it then you can kind of do anything. It's, it's, like, it's, it's mm-hmm. like you can fly, you know, <laughs> if you can do NaNo. Yeah. Um, but that said, it's, it's not something that works for everyone. It's not something that necessarily produces a draft that people can make anything out of. I'm, I've, when I say that that was my 2012 NaNo novel um, and that I finished it in early 2013, I mean, that was my... Hold on, now I'm going to count. One, two. That was my eighth novel. So just to give yeah, you an that's... idea of how many times I yeah. had tried before that. And, and I had won Nano before that year. It's not that I hadn't won, but I had never, after Nano finished, felt compelled mm-hmm. to keep going, to get to the end. It always felt like I had just kind of blown through all of my emotional energy. I had just run out of mana, and that was it. I was done. And uh, and I kind of never looked back at, at any of the previous drafts of other novels. So this this one, like I said, holds a special place in that it was the first that I said, no, no, I am going to finish. You have to finish things. Otherwise, where are you going to be with this this whole novelist business? So
0: I think that that's really valuable. Uh, last episode, we talked about this idea of being kind to yourself and that one of the things as a writer of being kind to yourself is giving yourself permission not to finish things
1: oh for sure yeah
0: but there is you know if you want to be a novelist and and this goes back to something i think mary robinette kowal has said to me personally and also in other venues is that in the beginning you have to learn to finish things before you can learn when you don't have to finish things
1: absolutely yeah and and it is difficult to develop that sense of what is worth finishing and what is not it's difficult to um to find it's kind of like okay so maria kondo is a big thing right now and so Mm -hmm. um in some ways it it is like developing and fine-tuning your sense of joy when it comes to Mm -hmm. deciding what stuff is worth revising what stuff is worth finishing even you know what you're going to use your time on time is a precious commodity and so Part of self-care is deciding what things you are going to use your precious time on and your emotional energy. And so knowing and and even being able to know the difference between a sort of natural inertia that occurs in terms of, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm a, i am I need to push through this kind of midpoint block, it, uh, you know, I'm stuck in the middle and I just have to keep going. The only way out is through, this is, you know, the minds of Moria or whatever. And I just right. need to, I just need to get out and then I'll be able to keep going. Uh, versus this is actually not worth my time. This is not worth continuing. This is not worth investing myself in because I, you know, because of any number of reasons, honestly, there, there can be a lot of reasons why you don't want to finish something because your skills have leveled up to a point where it's better and more fruitful to take them to a new project. Or Mm -hmm. you determine, for example, handyman, even though I finished it after I finished it and it took a couple of years to kind of really understand what, what was giving me some agitas about it. But I realized that I was approaching it from a particular perspective And ultimately, it was not a story that I should have been telling. Mm -hmm. And so that was part of why I trunked it. It was something that some of the different characters that I had who were fundamental sort of integral characters in the story were not really really good and appropriate. They were stereotypes. They were coming from a place of ignorance that Mm -hmm. I I had not done the necessary work to be able to accurately depict them. And so I had to take that step back. You know, kind of swallow my lumps and accept that I hadn't done what I needed to do to make this a book that I could be proud of. And I had to accept yeah. that, you know, again, using my time to completely gut and revise the novel to make it something that I could be proud of would would be potentially wasteful when instead what i could do is write something new write something different take the lessons that i'd learned in writing this novel uh to a to a different story
0: Hmm. yeah and it takes a lot of like it takes a lot of wisdom to be able to see that and mm-hmm. i think that's something that it, it's another muscle in writing that you have to develop is that wisdom of of whether this is something that's worth pursuing and you know it's it's empathy is such a wisdom, is such a such a muscle that needs to be built and needs to be maintained because there are lots of times that I think we've seen blowing up in Twitter discourse all the time that there are these novels that are being published that are like you know not not own voices but mm-hmm. you know something doesn't have to be own voices to be non harmful.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that was essentially what came down to in this is that I felt like what I had done would be harmful ultimately. And even though Mm -hmm. I had, of course, the best of intentions, um, I I would hope that the people who know me know that I am. I try. (laughs) I try. But it's it's definitely good to be able to take that step back and look at what you've done and say, you know what, this would be harmful. This would be problematic. And so, better that it not see the light of day. Better that it not uh, make it out in its current form. It's like, could I potentially sell this novel? No, because it actually sucks. It needs a lot of work. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that said, even if I sat down and I did give it kind of the 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 amount of time and polish to take what it is in its current form and and make it, you know, it's urban fantasy. It's it's kind of, you know, it's a fun little story. It takes place in Miami because I love to set things Mm -hmm. in Miami. I feel like we have... Uh, a dearth of fantasy and science fiction and and urban fantasy and and similar stuff that that happens here and and I, I try yeah. to I try to set things you know in places that are kind of close to my heart whenever possible. Um, but that said, ultimately yeah I was I was just not doing a good job, and even if I sat down and polished it, would I be able to sell it maybe would I would I then later be one of those people on Twitter feeling like a total fool for what I'd done? Yeah, probably
0: mm-hmm I've definitely I haven't written anything as big as a novel that I've felt that way about I mm-hmm. mean the the one novel that I have completed big air quotes that you can't see over audio <laughs> listeners um definitely like looking back at it now I'm like I like some of the core of this I like the ideas in it maybe I'll revisit it but There are a lot of things that are capital P problematic in it. Yes. You know, I am way more grown than I was seven years ago when I first wrote that.
1: Exactly. And that's basically where I was just seven years ago. And, you know, they have the old saying about how all your body cells replace themselves every seven years. Well, you know, seven years ago, it, it's, it's not that um, I was a, a terrible person seven years ago, but I was a different person and I was a, a less thoughtful person. And I certainly have learned a lot in that time. And I would hope mm-hmm. that today uh, I would not repeat some of the same mistakes that I made back then. And that said, of course, it's a constant learning process. But uh back yeah. yeah but back back then it was the things that i was trying to do i came it came from a good place but we're not we're not good in the end so definitely right. worth, worth ditching but we we do our best and we grow we learn and we grow and that's that's all part of the process of being writer and if if we're fortunate we do the learning and growing quietly <laughs> away from yes. away from places where we can cause harm that is the the best that we can hope
0: yeah yeah, and we do that learning and growing hopefully in spaces where we have people around us who can call us on our stuff.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's 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 hard because we don't want to put that kind of labor on other people, but I think that what what happens when you do have a good group like we do then there's a certain amount of kind of paying it forward. Is that we're we're all mm-hmm. sort of doing the labor for each other, and the people who are capable of doing it in that moment are the ones who sort of take up the the mantle, and the ones who aren't are the ones who step back and let other people do that work. So it is, it's you know, it's a process. We we share the load, so it works out. I think. Yeah. Yeah, and for and sure. and like you were saying, I mean it the the interesting thing is that even though i've trunked this right even though it's it's essentially the thing that i wrote is is it's in google drive i had to dig it mm-hmm. up as i was trying to find something to read for you here and, uh, and I opened it up and I thought, well, this actually isn't too bad. But even then, what m- inspired me more was the notion that I could take this and do something else with it. Like initially, when I had conceived of this idea, this handyman concept, right? Oh, you know, a handyman who has to fix supernatural problems, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a, another graphic novel series that occurs in Miami. Um, it's called Red Light Properties. And it's a similar concept, It's a, but it's a real realtor uh, broker who um, mm-hmm. uh, actually I think I think his ex-wife is the broker, here, but he's basically an exorcist. And so he kind of goes around sort of cleansing uh, what they call red light properties. Wow. Yeah. In order to make them <laughs> sellable. And so uh, having read that, I had this notion of like, OK, well, I could do something like that. At the time I was watching so much HGTV. I mean, so much <laughs> an ungodly amount of HGTV, it's really indecent. And so there was a show called Homes on Homes, and I had this notion of a guy that was kind of like that, just going around to problematic places and fixing up these these buildings, you know, fixing up homes that had kind mm-hmm. of spiraled out of control and a lot of times he would have homes where the contractor was bad and had done shoddy work and sometimes it was even incredibly dangerous for the family to be there or similar problems. And so I was like, well what if it was that but supernatural, right? Urban fantasy, different issues. Oh, there's dragons in the attic or <laughs> there's, mm-hmm. you know, a uh, ghost in the bathroom that's causing the, you know, the hot water to stop working or making the toilet overflow or whatever. And so you have a dude coming yeah. out to kind of fix these seemingly minor problems. And uh, originally, I thought it could be a web series. And I was as I unearthed this, I was talking to my husband about it. He was like, we could do a podcast. And I was like, Oh, my <laughs> God, <laughs> coming back around to my original <laughs> conception of this as kind of a little yeah. episodic, like, you know, sort of a guy talking to the camera kind of thing or, you and then my husband and I were talking about it. We were like, oh, it could be like car talk where people call in with like, oh, you know, <laughs> I'm having this issue where somebody like a ghost keeps drawing penises on the mirror in my bathroom. <laughs> <And it's> like, <laughs> you know, just random stuff. Um, and so it was oh, it was fun it again. Oh, yeah, I know. And <laughs> that was that was also just kind of anyway, whatever. But the point is that. The The things that you trunk are not, like, dead forever, you know? You can definitely mine them for material. They're always there. They always exist. You can always come back to them uh, later mm-hmm. when you've learned and grown. And and you can just take the ideas and, and strip them out of whatever you have and uh, put them somewhere new. Do something different with them. So, you know, no, nothing that you write is ever wasted. That's the beauty of all this.
0: Yeah. And I think that's something, like, that's... That's a big takeaway that I've learned from the last Oh god, I've been I've been submitting stories I think for 13 years at this point. Ooh, yeah. And like you know, I there are things that I wrote that I don't want to necessarily see the light of day anymore. <laughs>
1: yes, yeah. Things that at the time you were like, this is great. I can definitely sell this.
0: <laughs> yeah. I had a couple of stories that I like I knew about urban fantasy as like an idea, right, but I had not, for instance, read like the Dresden files or really any urban fantasy myself, and right. so I was writing these things that were to other people's eyes were you know Harry Dresden with the serial number filed off,
1: yes, yes, but you just didn't know, so
0: but I had no idea, and then I'd get like
1: real mad
0: when people called me on it. <laughs> Because, you know, I was like an early 20... late teens dude who thought I knew everything
1: oh sure yeah yeah Any anytime that happens anytime someone's like oh this is just like this other thing I read initially when you're younger you're kind of like oh no I did it again why yeah. do I keep writing stuff that's already been done and then now as I'm trying to get my, my novel stuff together it, everyone wants to know what are your comp titles and you're like oh please someone tell me that my book is like something else yeah. that you've read <laughs> I need comp titles <laughs> yeah so, for sure now it's a little more appreciated. It
0: comes full circle.
1: Yeah, it does. It does. The things, the things about you and your youth that you you despaired of are things that now you're kind of like, oh, that wasn't so bad actually.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so one one thing that you mentioned about this being set in Miami is like putting putting stories in places that are close to your heart, and I really felt that on like a deep spiritual level because I keep like half the things I write are set in the Bay Area where I now live. Mm-hmm. But especially initially, like, everything I wrote, unless it was, you know, Secondary World, everything was set in Philadelphia. <laughs> because it's just, like, it's the city I know, and especially for Philly, it feels like one of those places where you don't see it in media that much. Yeah, and... And I'm yeah. wondering, you know there are, certainly there are genres where i feel miami is probably more prevalent sure. but for writing urban fantasy mm-hmm. i definitely can't think of any you know comp titles there
1: yeah no there's a there is a lot of fiction set in miami in general Mm-hmm. And, and less but less speculative fiction so in terms of regular fiction obviously you have your Carl Hyacin who sets stuff in mm-hmm. Miami you have Dave Barry uh, you have Alex Segura who writes uh, crime fiction uh, that's set in Miami, and you have. There's a lot of other crime authors too that unfortunately are not coming to mind immediately. I wish, I wish, <laughs> I wish they would. Um, but my brain is slow, and uh, and and there, like, I, there's. I know there's a woman who also writes crime fiction that I've read before, and I just oh, why can't I think of her name? But there, there are a lot of writers in Miami. Definitely, it's not that they aren't here. Um, I, I, there, they just uh, tend to produce less speculative fiction. Um, and definitely more kind of uh, suspense, mystery, even horror. I think I've seen more than than other kinds of speculative fiction. Romance uh, mm-hmm. certainly is is one. That is big. Um, I, I, I remember when I found out that Cat Howard went to the University of Miami because I actually hired <laughs> I hired her to read a story that is sort of half trunked the door. The door is not completely closed on that. The lid of the trunk, it's it's sort of wedged in there. And I keep thinking mm-hmm. I need to go back and finish fixing it. Because she had a lot of positive things to say about it. But I found out she went to the University of Miami because she, she said how much that story, which was set in Miami, reminded her of just little things that she had forgotten about her time here. And, oh, fantastic. And, yeah, no, and, 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 and that felt so good to me because, again, that's, that is a thing that I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find the parts of the city that are not the ones that you see on... CSI Miami, which is not shot in Miami, so you, mm-hmm. won't, you won't see parts of it here regardless. But Burn Notice was shot in Miami, for example. Um, there are some other shows. I think Sugar. There was another one that I can't remember the name of, too, that was another like uh, like a Sugar story or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, some kind of crime crime family s- scenario. But, but, yeah, Miami is something that I feel like a lot of it is just, just beaches, beaches, beaches. When I could not tell you the last time I went to the beach... It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a solid 15 mile drive for me in bad, bad traffic. So it's it's right. like, no, it's, it's almost like if you live in the Los Angeles area and people are like, Oh, when was the last time you went to Santa Monica pier? And you're like, I, um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We're in the Bay area. It's like, Oh, do you go see the bridge all the time? And you're like, do I though?
0: <laughs> I yeah. I, I see it from the top of the hill on my morning commute,
1: <laughs> but yeah. like,
0: yeah, I, I don't think I've come to think of it, at least without going, like, to the north or the south, I don't think I've been to the Pacific Ocean since I moved here, like, at San Francisco. I've been to the bay because I do my grocery shopping right Mm -hmm. off of the bay. Right. And, like, I've gone to, like, Half Moon Bay or Monterey, like, places Mm -hmm. like that that are, you know, I'm going there for the beach. Yeah. Or for, not the beach, California beaches in Northern California what are we talking about? Like, I'm going <laughs> to see wildlife there or whatever but I'm not going
1: you to jump you're not gonna jump into the Pacific ocean. no 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 swimming yeah,
0: no. no no those Jersey guys in their wetsuits surfing in January because it's the only time you get good surf up there.
1: Oh, boy. Even, even, in, even in the L.A. area, just watching people get into the Pacific, I remember dipping my foot in and being like, what are they doing? Yeah. No, this is too much. I mean, the water over here is definitely a lot warmer. I can Ball say me. that.
0: <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, it is, um, it's very much like living in a place is much different than how it's presented a lot of the time. And I think that our writing gives us a, an opportunity to present that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And and I feel like places that you live can sort of insert themselves into your into your spirit in a way. They just get so um, intertwined in who you are, whether you like it or not. And and in good and bad ways. It's not necessarily... There are a lot of people that live in places that are actively hostile to them. And so, like, those people, I can see how they would have very negative memories. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, it's, but, but at the same time, even if the memories are negative, even if they've lived through you know, very dark experiences wherever they are, those places are still part of them. Those places are still kind of wrapped up in them. And so it depends on how much they want to dig into that darkness, dig into that that difficulty. A lot of times people tell you to write towards that, to sort of mm-hmm. write towards the hard stuff in order to really find good emotional cores for your stories. I I can't say that I fully support that because I feel like sometimes that's asking an amount of emotional labor of people that they're not necessarily capable of of completing. And, And I think that's unfair. And I think also a lot of the stories that I like to tell are... I feel like they do have solid emotional cores, but at the same time, I'm not necessarily trying to dig through pain. You know what I mean? I, I like mm-hmm. to tell fun stories. I like to tell interesting stories, kind of adventure stories. I feel like they end up going to <laughs> sort of darker places, hey, despite my best intentions. But mm-hmm. but that said, you know, I am not generally trying to hurt people, trigger people, you know, take them to that, and so I feel like that is a thing that even if you have a place that is very strongly entrenched in in you and and has a lot of kind of emotional impacts and and entanglements, you may not want to dig into that because it may be actively harmful to you. So it sometimes mm-hmm. it is a form of self care to step back from a place that, while very important to you and for you know, uh, formative, may in fact be damaging, very damaging. So
0: yeah, and it it can be. It can almost be therapeutic to, like, find the parts of a place that are embedded in you so deeply, like, as a part of your person and be able to separate them from that hurt, for instance.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, you know, again, some of the stories that I've told that take place here... Um, some of the characters that I've used are based on people that I've known. And it's not that I'm reproducing them in any direct way. Because obviously that would be f- very disrespectful, first of all. But mm-hmm. um, but I but I, alf- I often use them kind of as, as a basis. And it is sometimes a way for me to process my relationships with those people. Um, the ways in which we interacted with each other. And I don't mean that in a way that is denigrating them if anything a lot of the times I was maybe not a good person towards them a kind person towards them and so Mm -hmm. sometimes in, in people will often think that writers are you know writing themselves into stories and that's absolutely true but often not in the way that people would think A lot of Mm -hmm. times, a lot of times, the characters that you're writing, you know, they think, "Oh, you know, you've made yourself the hero." Well, no, maybe I'm the villain in this one. Maybe (laughs) I'm, maybe I'm that awful side character that you didn't realize was, you know, it's, it's like, no, there's a part of me in in almost every character I write, just because, of course, that gets you to the verisimilitude that you want when you're writing something. But, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not necessarily the good parts. It's not necessarily the aspirational parts. It's not necessarily that I'm writing some sort of perfected version of myself. If, if, if anything, sometimes I'm digging into the parts of me that I don't like and examining them and trying to figure out, you know, my way through, I guess.
0: Yeah. So sort of circling back to Miami specifically, mm-hmm. I've noticed a thing with when I put Philadelphia in stories that there are, there are details, you know, obviously sometimes you just put in details that Everybody else looks at them and they're like, huh? Because they just don't know them. Right. And that, you know, that's a pitfall of writing in general Mm -hmm. of, you know, you have like so strongly pictured this thing in your head that you don't put it onto the page and then people are confused. Oh, yes. But what I'm wondering about specifically, because you're writing about a place you're very connected with, is have you run into things that are just like funny little quirks that people don't necessarily, like, that make make people scratch their head but aren't, like, you're leaving something out, obviously. It's more, the the example I'm thinking of for myself mm-hmm. is that in Philly, we don't say, down, like, nobody goes downtown. You go to Center City. Okay. That's just, that's what the downtown area is called. And everybody knows that. But I threw Center City into a story once, and someone was like, without naming Philadelphia... And Mm. someone was like, is Center City the name of the city? (laughs) And so I'm wondering if there are things you've, like, regionalisms you've come to notice only through writing. Or that you've you've come to notice are not universal.
1: Oh, gosh. Okay, so I don't know if I can think of anything super specific, but I, I will do my best. So there are, as I've been writing my current novel, and a little bit when I was writing Handyman. Uh, because that was sort of, I, I was, I want to say the year before that was when I really, really started embracing the whole, like, let me write what I know. Let me write the places that I know. Mm-hmm. And and let me write them in a way that's authentic to me. So Handyman was one of the first where I was like, I'm going to write a Cuban-American guy who is married to a Cuban-American woman, you know, second generation people, parents came from Cuba, like that whole kind of narrative because it was so familiar and personal to me. But More so in the novel that I'm working on now, which has a lot of Spanish in it, actual Spanish, where Handyman, I was still shying away from that. I was still worrying. I was still writing for, you know, the the sort of white audience that one assumes, Mm -hmm. the, the English speaking audience, worrying about including Spanish in the story because I didn't want to alienate people. But with the one that I'm working on right now, there are so many times when I've tried to figure out slang or something or or just different ways of doing something, saying something, different foods. And it's been like, is this something that is Cuban? Is this something that is just Mm-mm. my family? Is this something that is just my friends that we used to say with each other? Is this, what is the rating of this podcast? I don't know how many, what we words. We can swear on this podcast. Okay, just checking. I mean, it's, it's yeah, I, <laughs> I try not to swear because I have small children and they are impressionable. And soon the baby is going to start repeating words in a way that will yeah. be will come back to bite me. So I'm I'm trying to <laughs> trying to control my language. But even just how to spell certain words was definitely very challenging because you don't necessarily find them easily.
0: Mm-hmm. Just Cuban
1: slang, things like that. And so one one thing that we say here and and I think that it has gained kind of more widespread prominence, but you know, we talk about how are comiendo mierda. And so, mm-hmm. what are you doing? Ah, comiendo mierda. And, and it means eating shit. And it's kind of like people will be like, You're eating shit? What? Are you? And it just means you're like just, just screwing around, just like, What are you doing? Ah, just comiendo mierda, you know, I'm watching a cartoon, I'm you know, staring at my phone. You know, I'm not oh, doing I love that yeah, so it's much. Like, I'm not doing anything important, I'm just eating shit. And and when you're bilingual, when you when you speak in Spanglish, you'll say it in English, you'll say it in Spanish, and you kinda go back and forth and but then every once in a while you'll say it to someone who is not from here. And they will just get very, very confused by, what do you mean you're eating shit? What? Is that bad? Like, what is that? I don't understand. And uh, and you have to be like, no, no, it's not a big deal. Or um, you say, you know, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to Casa carajo. and And that's like saying BFE, which even BFE is something that is not necessarily a widespread thing. And it's just like I'm going mm-hmm. somewhere that's really far away, you know? Right and and that's sort of a Spanishism that people don't necessarily understand what's casa carajo, you're going to the, the house the crow's nest house, I don't understand and <laughs> even just the concept of carajo which directly translates to crow's nest but it's like, you know, you tell people ay, vete pa carajo, and it's like go to hell but it's kind of worse than mm-hmm. hell, and hell is infierno, which is a totally different word so, I mean, Cubans just come up with stuff also, we don't say papaya that's a bad word <laughs> we call it a fruta bomba. And so, if you go to a store and you're like, "Oh, I'm going to buy some papayas." You it's like record scratch and humans look at you like, "Oh, really? <laughs> is that what you're going to buy?" Okay, I guess so. But that really only will happen in certain stores because certainly um we have Publix down here, which is kind of like um I guess like Ralphs.
0: Mm-hmm. Like a Safeway or Well, Check it's it's whatever.
1: It, Ralphs is kind of the higher end one, right? Like I'm not it's the, it's the, uh, sp-
0: I think so. I've never lived in a place that has a. Rep. Oh, okay,
1: yeah, that's that's Southern California then. I was trying to, I'm trying to West Coast for you, but um, I'm trying to think yeah. like it's like it's nicer than Kroger. It's like Knob Hill. Yeah, it's not as nice as a Whole Foods. <laughs> it's, <laughs> but Publix is great. Has a reputation down here. That's another thing. People will be like, "Oh, I'm gonna go get a Publix sub," and it's a big deal. And everyone from elsewhere <laughs> is like, Oh what? Now you're gonna get a sandwich? Okay, I guess, sure, whatever." It's like, no, you don't understand. This is a Publix sub. A Publix yeah. sub. And then some people who live here are like, ah, eh, they're okay. <laughs> so even then It's
0: it, it I feel that on a very deep spiritual level as a Philadelphian because like <laughs> we ha so in Philly we have Wawa which is
1: Ah yes, we just have started to get Wawas. There's one oh, being that's built right you
0: have Wawa in Florida. We are it's now wonderful.
1: there is a Wawa being built next to an Aldi, which is another thing we just got <laughs> here. Aldi nice. and Wawa together again for the first yeah. time. Um but yes. Wawa. But
0: yeah, so like Wawa is when people who don't know what a Wawa is ask about it, we have to be like, so imagine a seven eleven but it's got a full deli in it. <laughs> and that's sort of how it is. But like, you know, I like I grew up when I was growing up they didn't have the touch screen ordering things yet, so it was like a rite of passage to be able to order a sandwich because it was just you had to walk up catch the eye of somebody <laughs> you know there's no like menu it just tells you like the types of sandwiches and the sizes but oh it doesn't god. tell you what's on them what uh, so you had to you had to know what was on the sandwich you wanted what things you wanted to exclude from your sandwich oh my god what size of bread and like you know for little 10 year old me to like walk up to a sandwich counter look up sort of peek up over the glass and catch somebody's eye and then make a sandwich order was like huge rite of passage. Oh my
1: gosh. It sounds deeply stressful to me. Although actually at 10, I was, I was already going to 7-Elevens and getting chili cheese dogs. So that's, but that's a little easier. You don't have to know about like. That's a little
0: easier because it's just like, it's on the roller. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. But it, it is that, it's that sort of thing. And that's just, that's always so fascinating to me. And I, I love that, you know, that's the sort of thing you're putting in your writing to be able to experience somebody else's, uh, to, to have somebody else's experience and, like, have an experience that isn't just, you know, sort of, like, everybody has, has an idea of going to, like, going to a... a what's name in New York whatever they're yeah,
1: like called. Yeah, like a deli, like... like
0: Yeah, a... or or um, bodega, that's the word.
1: Oh, bodega, yeah, yeah. And and yeah, see, like... that's the thing, too, is that you, you would think that we would have bodegas here, but, like, Miami, generally speaking, I mean, we have them, yeah, but for the most part, depending on where you live in Miami, it can be just very sprawled out. I mean, I, I wouldn't mm-hmm. even dream of walking anywhere, like, ever. And it's not that people don't, but it's a very car-centric kind of place. And so that's another thing... That people don't necessarily expect we are mm-hmm. our, our weather can be very unpredictable, but the way that it, it's unpredictable tends to be rain, basically, right? Oh, uh, yeah, duh. But but there's this kind of image of Miami as this sort of sun drenched, beautiful paradise, and you know, yeah, there's that, but it's also just rainy a lot, so
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so walking anywhere, it's kind of like, oh, do I have my umbrella with me? Am I ready for the rain? And it's just too hot. It's too muggy. It's nobody wants to walk anywhere. It's it's yeah. you know, a mile to year's place and then oh god, it's just awful.
0: I hear you. I swear we'll get back to writing at some point, but I'm just having too much fun with this. <clears throat> when I first moved to Oakland I was listening to Pandora Radio, and they were running some competition of, like, you could win a trip to the Pandora offices to be a music analyst person for a day or something. Oh, wow. And, like, they didn't say, they didn't say sunny Oakland, California, but they, you know, they would, they were talking in these ads that would come on, like, every three songs, like you could win a tri- trip to Oakland, California. And <laughs> the sunshine was implied in the way they said it. Oh my gosh. And I was, you know, sitting in my office in Oakland at like 10 in the morning on in on a July morning. And I looked outside and it was just fog. Like I couldn't even see... San Francisco. And so it's, you know, it's like when you're in San Francisco, you can spot the tourists because they're the ones wearing San Francisco hoodies. <laughs> and, like, Which they have just purchased,
1: yes. And same thing here, you can spot the tourists because they're wearing like, like really flimsy ponchos that they just bought at the Walgreens. Like, yeah, <laughs> It's like, oh, no, it's raining. What are we going to do? I don't know. Yeah. I I have like seven umbrellas that I just buy them at Ikea because they're like $3 each. And I just have them. Yeah. They're everywhere. I leave them all over the place all the time because that's, again, it's the, na- the nature of living in Miami. It's like, oh, I brought my umbrella because it seemed like it was maybe going to rain later. I uh, wasn't yeah. sure. Even if it looks like it's not going to rain, chances are it'll probably rain in the afternoon. That's just life. And so, yeah, you just end up leaving umbrellas all over the place. Whoops. Whoops. Yeah. Well, getting back to writing, though, like, one of the fun things is you had kind of mentioned earlier. It's like, yeah, okay, so you can do a lot of urban fantasy stuff if you want, or horror or whatever, and setting it in real-life places. But second-world fantasy, so one of the things that I like to do is take elements from my daily life and figure out how to transplant Mm -hmm. those in second-world fantasy. Because I think that's really cool, too. So, like... The notion of, okay, yeah, you live in a place where it rains all the time, and so people are always carrying umbrellas around. You don't see umbrellas mm-hmm. in fantasy. <laughs> like, that's just not, you know, Jon Snow is not standing out in the snow with an umbrella on, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's just not not a thing they worry about. And even even just the notion that fantasy can occur in places where there's no snow seems kind of foreign sometimes. So, Mm -hmm. like, when I'm writing second world fantasy, I often tend to set it in places that are more tropical, subtropical, you know, islands, peninsulas, Mm -hmm. things like that, wherein you have just kind of heat all the time and rain and, and hurricanes and all of this stuff that doesn't tend to show up in fantasy novels because of the fact that most of the people writing them sort of default to a European temperate climate with, you know, seasons our seasons are the wet yeah. season and the dry season. Like it's, yep. <laughs> is it is it raining or is it not raining? That's kind of the differentiation. You know, sometimes we'll get cold spells. Sometimes the temperature will drop, but we're talking, you know, individual days more or less. And the rest of the time, it's just at least seventy degrees, usually yeah. in the eighties.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm reading T. Kingfisher or Ursula Vernon. Yes. Uh, writing as T. Kingfishers. Uh, the Clockwork Boys right now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I just like just ran across a paragraph where she mentions defense contractors, and I was like, <laughs> I just had to stop and absorb that for a second because I was like, I have never seen you know in in any of fantasy I've ever read before, I've never seen somebody talk about like defense spending.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. There there are so many kind of un mind places or places that have been discussed but in books that don't get as much traction for whatever reason because mm-hmm. of course like it's very easy to say oh you never see this well i mean i i believe tobias Buckell has has written many fantasy things that are said in in island like places and so it's not to yeah. not to say that i'm the first or the last person to do similar stuff so i don't hope i'm oh, not imp- i'm no no i'm not implying that in the slightest but um but it Tony is forgive us. Yes, no, 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 not even. Um but uh and, and 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 just and other people too. I mean, obviously it's it's something that does get done. It's it's not to imply mm-hmm. that it doesn't. But that it's not the default. And so it's always fun to to find those things where you can pull from your own experience and and put them into another world um, where where it is it is the norm it is the default and you don't have to worry about like you know defending it establishing it doing anything to, to... and i know that for example silvia moreno garcia has that issue she even just in writing from her own experiences about growing up in mexico she's had people tell mm-hmm. her like this isn't what mexico city is like and she's like i was there though <laughs> <What> are <you laughs> how are you going to tell me this isn't what it, this was my life. <laughs> I know what it right. was like because I was there. So that is the danger too in writing places that you are that are very near and dear to you is that you may have other people come in and say oh that's not what it's like it's like well yeah no that is not what you had an experience of or that is not your received experience from other writers delivering stories about this place to you but that doesn't make this vision wrong that doesn't make this viewpoint wrong it just makes it different you know there there Mm -hmm. are a lot of you know how, how many novels are set in sort of you know, again, sort of Eastern, and Euro- Western European settings, um,
0: right, in
1: in which people draw from the the history of that region. And uh, there, there are so many stories that can come out of there that are not the same. And so the idea that every Viking story is the same Viking story is, is abs- as absurd as, like, every Arthur story being. You know, how many, how many King Arthur stories have we read at this point? Let's be real. Too and, many? Too many. And so the idea that there has to just be one, like, mexican Ur story <laughs> versus mm-hmm. thousands of King Arthur stories, it's like, come on, guys, be real. We can tell a lot of yeah. different versions of this, and they're all perfectly valid.
0: Yeah. So since we're getting towards the end of the show, I was wondering if uh, time machines come, keep coming up. (laughs) Uh, If you had a time machine, if you could go back and tell, you know, baby writer Valerie something uh, like what sort of wisdom have you received now that you think, you know, baby Valerie would be able to benefit from and that listeners could benefit from?
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, part of what we've been talking about when I was initially writing, I was very resistant to writing for my own, my own life, my own experience, I was trying to write those kind of, you know, European um, uh, stories, I when I was writing fantasy, it was very much the fantasy that I had been reading when I was writing science Mm -hmm. fiction. It was the science fiction that I've been reading. And most of it was sort of the, the Western canon. It was the standard stuff. It was, you know, Asimov, Bradbury, uh, Clark, you know, the, the, the big Larry Niven and, and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And, um, ultimately I, I finally started branching out and, and finding stuff like McKinley, McKillop, um, and McCaffrey, all the Mechs, all the the Mech everything, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Mercedes Louis Lackey, Yes, yes, Um and you know uh, Ursula Le Guin and 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 Diana Wynne Jones was like a revelation to me. But yes. just the the idea, you know, write the things that are close to you, but also make sure you're reading outside of the canon i mean today thankfully we have such a wealth of stuff that young valerie Mm -hmm. just didn't know about at the time i mean if i could go back and and you know hand her some uh, i don't know like butler or something like just just shake her it's like don't just just put down the piers anthony (laughs) let's not let's not (laughs) don't waste your time on it read this other stuff I, I I wish I could do that because there's just so much good stuff going on that feels like it's new and feels like it's recent but but started so long ago and and I, it's like I could have been reading all of that when I was you know reading other stuff that was just not for me and um yeah yeah and and so that's that's definitely one thing but also like you know be okay with letting go of stuff because that's mm-hmm. you know um, as as much as completing stuff is vital and important, it also, like I said, you know, way back at the beginning, it's it is important to develop that sense of does this spark joy, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and and is this something that comes from a place that is deep and important to me in a way that will help me keep going? Because again, it was um, 2014 was when I started writing Chilling Effect, which is my novel that's coming out. So it was two years after mm-hmm. Handyman. And in, it really was a novel that was kind of very near to my heart. It was it was characters that I loved. It was pulling from, you know, all the video games that I watched you know, played growing up and movies that I watched and cartoons and just just all this stuff that I had consumed, all of the, you know, detritus cultural detritus of my youth and, and all the things that mm-hmm. I'd collected over the years, like a katamari, you know, like I just <laughs> I and, and like I rolled up all this stuff and, and made it into my own star. And like that's the kind of thing that 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 will keep you writing and that will help you finish because that was what was missing from so many things I didn't finish and that I did trunk was that core that element that that sort of burning drive that came from within me um, they were it's sort of intellectual exercises things that I found interesting but not things mm-hmm. that that really spoke to me and that I found you know that resonated with me so
0: fantastic So, you brought in a beautiful segue to Chilling Effect, your (laughs) debut novel coming out in September of 2019.
1: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. September 17th. Uh,
0: What would you like to... September 17th. Fantastic. Um, And with a beautiful Julie Dillon cover?
1: Oh yes, I was so excited. That was That is a bucket list item that I was just, I was so psyched when I first started, you know, they were doing the cover stuff and they said, oh, do you have any ideas? Any thoughts? And I was like, hold on let me get my Pinterest board up. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, let me send you a bunch of links. And, And I think at least two or three of the links were of Julie Dillon artwork. And so, immediately several of them, the editor was like oh my gosh, this is great. Tell me more about this. And I was was like let me send you to julie dylan's website and we just both kind of squeed for a few minutes and then i and and that said of course i wasn't expecting to get a julie dylan cover it was just kind of like yeah this is great isn't she great yeah she is great Mm -hmm. and then later when i started seeing the thumbnails it was like oh my god this is so cool and then when i finally found out it really was a julie dylan cover i was like my life my life is complete (sighs) Yeah. yeah so that was amazing um, and, and very exciting because, you know, you, you don't get a lot of say necessarily over the covers when your book's mm-hmm. being put together. And, uh, and that can be kind of stressful if you're a self-published author and indie author, you know, you have a lot more say, more control, but traditional published yeah. authors, um, it, yeah, it's, it's more or less out of your hands. And, uh, I felt like I had a lot of say in it in terms of, you know, multiple thumbnails were provided. I said which one I thought was the best and then they went with it. Um, so I didn't mm-hmm. get like overridden, you know, they, they listened to me, they took into consideration what my thoughts were. So I feel like I, I got a fair amount of input, you know, and I feel privileged that I did. Uh, but it's not That's always really that. way. Yeah, 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 it was pretty exciting. Yeah, and, and I will say that the cover, while it does not actually show a scene from the book, part of mm-hmm. why I really went to bat for it is because it captures the tone of the book so well. Anyone who wants to go take a look at that, it's the main character, uh, Captain Eva Innocente, uh, falling <laughs> falling into space, trying to uh, reach for a box that is kind of just out of reach. And it really was just kind of the thing that she would do. She, She's the kind of person to leap first <laughs> and uh, look mm-hmm. later. And... Um, And of course the space cats are, are the best. And so you will see space cats on the cover. And so again, while, while this scene does not actually occur uh, just tonally, it's just so accurate to the novel. It's such a, it's such a quirky, weird, funny, you know, ridiculous (laughs) novel. It's so uh, great. Yeah. Uh,
0: Listeners, we will have a copy of the image in the show notes. So you can go and take a look at this amazing cover and uh, please pre-order this book pre-orders help authors so so much
1: yes please
0: um and it's going to be out september 17th Mm -hmm. Uh, valerie you are to be found online on twitter at valerie valdez is that correct
1: yep valerie valdez with an s so make sure even though it sounds like a z but um yeah valerie valdez yeah we
0: were we were talking about this beforehand i was like I hope I got this pronunciation right, because I just recorded last month's episode.
1: Yes, yes. And it's okay. Yes, Valerie Valdez. Um, you could Excellent. say Valdez. It would not be wrong for you to pronounce it that way, uh, but it is definitely with an S, and I always have to spell it over the phone, so it's not a problem. Yeah,
0: I feel you. <laughs>
1: yep, yep. Oh, yeah, you would, you would.
0: I, I learned the NATO phonetic alphabet because I have to spell my name over the phone so much. <laughs>
1: Oh, no. Yeah, I believe it. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Valerie, thank you so much for coming on. Um, It's been a real pleasure. We're going to have a mutual friend of ours next month. That is October. uh, Sorry, October. August. August of 2019. August 16th. We are going to have none other than Tyler Hayes, who we both know from our online writing community and whose novel also comes out in September. Yay. So I hope that people will stick around for that one.
1: All right. Yay, Tyler.
0: Yeah. I'm so pumped.
1: Yeah, me too. So
0: thank you again so, so much. It's been a real pleasure and...
1: The pleasure is entirely mine.
0: <laughs> thank you. All right. Until next time, listeners... Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com trunkcast. Patrons of the show get access to show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisniacs. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject.